Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Tuning in to this week's episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and we are so, so close to spring. I can almost taste it, but I'm still still seeing the 20s at nighttime. I still got the wood stove cranking to try to keep my house warm, but we're getting closer. I know uh, working with the, the farmers that I work with um, in my daily, my daily rounds, uh, a lot of guys are getting anxious to start doing some field work. You know, we've got... Uh, combining weed out in the field and we typically like to do a couple of a uh, couple of management practices on that we'll, we'll manage weed pressures in that and uh, we'll also dress with uh, nitrogen fertilizer pretty you know pretty much this time of year I mean some guys have already started I think it's a little bit on the earlier side just because soil conditions are <clears throat> still not favoring uh, the crop breaking dormancy. You know, we're we're still kind of that, but we're we're close. You know, some parts of the state we definitely have uh, have reached that, and it's it's favoring uh, favoring spring conditions. And you know, we can uh, we can make a, a fertilizer application, but still uh, still just kind of in the the waiting game, I guess you'd say for for full on spring. But uh, I am still in food plot mode. I am thinking food plots. I'm strategizing, game planning. I was, I finally had the ability to go behind my house and do a little bit of work. I finally made a little bit of time last weekend, and I, I bought a couple of screening trees. So I, I've been playing the screening game, testing and tinkering with what's going to work behind my house for the screening in my wood lot and my small food plot, and I have uh, a couple rows of miscanthus grass and the the first year when I planted it some of the rows took off really well and others just didn't uh, and I'm not quite sure what happened I think it was a couple of dry soil conditions it could have been some of the rhizomes weren't uh, <clears throat> weren't good anymore I'm not sure what the problem was but regardless I ended up having to replant it a second year so I've got some uh, some miscanthus grass that stands really tall and it's in its third year I believe and some of it that's only in its second and you know it's varying stages of height I also have a little bit of switchgrass planted and due to my <clears throat> lack of oh planning or <clears throat> lack of prioritizing uh keeping it clean I ended up getting some grass weeds in it so I ended up getting some weed competition didn't quite get as tall as it should have been and it also got a little patchy at some places it didn't fill in so I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to fill in this barrier between you know yard and woodlot I just came to the conclusion like why am I trying to do so I know this screen needs to be here I believe the screen needs to be here so I ended up buying uh, I got a really good deal on some trees that uh, I'm thinking in you know the amount of time it's taken me to uh, 
have these screens that are not fully functioning the way I want them, I probably could have had the same result or better planting trees that are going to get a little bit taller, which I do need a taller a taller screen and a little bit more permanent screen. So uh, I'm looking at it as layers. I think it's a a good thing. It's going to be a good thing long term. And I, I got a lot more work to do. I've been neglecting my place a lot for a couple reasons. Number one, life gets in the way. Number two, uh, you know, 2020, I was all about working on my place because I knew there was one specific deer I wanted to target and do as much as I possibly could. And uh, I had motivation there. And I haven't had that same motivation back here. Uh, not until last year. I did have one deer I got a series of pictures of, and I don't even know if he's alive yet. But it was just enough to make me think, you know what, I, I need to re uh, reevaluate my uh, my woodlot. And I got a lot of work to do. I got some trees to clean up. I'd like to redo some travel corridors. And I have some plans of things I'd like to do to just connect it and make it flow better. I'd like to change the the shape and angle of the food plot there, there's there's just a number of things and i hope i can get a lot of this done or some of it done before spring green up but uh, you know that's all in the works and again the the food plot i have ideas of what i want to do and i always like to pick other people's brains and other people's experiences on that and this week's episode we're, we're, we're sticking with food plots this week guys and we're talking with Mike Lindahl of Domain Outdoors, and Mike is going to talk about domain products a little bit. He's, he's going to talk more, though, about designing a food plot prescription that fits different types of scenarios, you know, different types of properties, hunting pressures, deer populations, things like that, and just catering it to his experiences, his knowledge, and he's, he's using some examples of, of, the, own, of the, the properties that he hunts and has part in managing, and it's a great episode. We, we go into a lot of hunting strategy with these food plot setups, these size of plots, location, access, things like that, and then cater it to hunting goals and objectives and, you know, just how properties are different. You know, that's one thing that's probably overlooked a lot. A lot of, a lot of times we get these cookie-cutter ideas of how a food plot has to be, and if it's outside of that box, it doesn't work. And, you know, we all know that whitetails, you know, there's an extreme diversity of habitat and and uh, wild area out there and deer there's it's such a, a wide range of things or scenarios that could possibly go on that could impact food plots and food availability and palatability and all that stuff and how food plots get used I, I I'm, I'm rambling now but I, I real I'm thinking in my head like there's no one size fits all when it comes to food plots and constantly tinkering to figure out what works in your specific situation is really really important that's one thing that mike does a good job of talking about and uh, guys this is an exciting conversation it, it fuels me up gets me thinking hunting strategy which that's why i like food plots because it's all part of that and uh, i really think you're going to enjoy this conversation with mike as well so let's get right to it guys Honestly, it, it's impossible, but I appreciate it. 
<laughs> well, hey, we're uh, we're rolling here, and I got another guest with me, uh, another food plot guru. Uh, you know, we've been on this food plot kick here recently, and there's a good reason for that, and that's because number one, as you guys know, I'm a I'm a food plot, none if there ever was one. But this is uh, as good of a food plot planning time as any. You know, we're, we're leading into the growing season, and tonight with me, I'm speaking with Mike Lindahl from. Domain Outdoors, Mike. Thank you for taking the time to uh, to chat with us on all things food plots. Thanks for having me, man. It's uh, I share the same passion you do, so I enjoy having conversations like this. It allows, it gives me a chance to continue to learn. Uh, which in this category, you better have an appetite for learning because you're going to learn something new every day when it comes to planning and planting and deer and mother nature and weather and soil. So I'm excited to learn from you as well today. Well, you, you, you never stop learning like this. Like, you know, there's there's people, you know, I don't know who you think of when you think of like the professionals, the experts, the people you look to from the food plot world, the industry, whatever you want to call it. You know, one person in, in my life that I've really, you know, molded off of and learned from and watched over the years would, would be Dr. Grant Woods from Growing Deer. Sure. And, yep. uh, you know, what's amazing is if you watch his videos from when he first started till how he's developed his food plot program now, it's completely different. And he shares those learning experiences. You're always learning. And it's 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 no different from, you know, those people who have dedicated their heart and soul and their, their career to it versus people um, like myself who, you know, I'm an agronomist, but uh, I love deer hunting. I love food plots. And uh, I try to do it in my time. You know, we we were talking before this. And we were, we were kind of going through the... The, the the family style we we both shared we both got young kids and that that changes the whole dynamic man <laughs> in a good way yeah I, I'm, you know i'm okay with that yeah we we were supposed to meet later and bedtime got in the way so that's that's life nowadays and um i think it plays into kind of how we've designed some of our products too though like we spoke about or talked about before this started i i would hate for you i mean our products are are designed in that I expect you to have very little time, and when you have time, you go hunt, and our products are designed to have deer in them no matter when that is. Certainly. So, um, Mike, why don't yeah. you do? Uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit better than I did and kind of, like, give everybody a, an idea of how did you get started in the food plot business? I'm not – I've never been very good at this part. Um, you know, I, we started Domain Outdoor in late 2018, early 2019. I was fortunate to have been in the industry – for six years prior to that, um, learning from some incredible people and some agronomists and people far, far smarter than me. And I was wise enough to listen and not say a whole lot and just, you know, take it all in and continue to learn. And like you said, over the, what is, what's it been like 10 or 11, 12 years now that I've been kind of into this, I've been planting longer than that, but, um, I've been so lucky to surround myself with really smart people. And I've been, um, you know, smart enough to just shut up and listen and yeah. take it all in and, and take some from this person and some from that person. I don't think there's one person that's helped direct kind of my vision per se. It's just been a, um, a long list of trial and error and failures and successes and kind of bringing it all together with the idea that we're going to provide the, the highest quality product first and foremost, uh, designed to work anywhere for anybody mm-hmm. uh, at a very, very affordable cost, Ex- high-end products, affordable cost. I want everybody to be able to afford them and purchase them and have success with them. 
the best customer service and support there is to offer, um, helping from start to finish. It's a category where there's a million things that can go wrong. Uh, you can do everything wrong and it turns out right. You can do everything right and it turns out wrong. So my job, our job is to make sure we're here along to you know help assist and try to eliminate some of those pitfalls. And then from an assortment standpoint, we've got a million products because of what you're talking about. Um, everybody's property is different. Everybody's equipment is different. Soil is different. Deer are different. Um, so that leads to a whole bunch of different options to help solve problems and create success. So Domain Outdoor is kind of founded on all those things. Um, if you follow along with us at all, we're just hardworking, honest, blue collar guys. You know, we're pretty straightforward, pretty transparent. And, you know, we're lucky to be able to do what we love every day. Yeah, so, I'm looking forward to diving into your mind and how your thought process works when you're, you know, talking about some of the properties that you help manage or if you're you're recommending uh, food plot seed to a customer or something like that. But you, you, you mentioned one thing you talked about quality um quality in your products so yeah. you know there's a, there's a number of food plot seed companies out there um some of them have been around for a long time some of them are on the newer side um and it, it can be really hard for somebody who isn't as well educated to really have a good sense of what makes a quality food plot seed itself you know and, and where i'm coming from you know I have this uh, this conversation with my farmers all the time. So you know, when I'm running precision ag data, you know, we'll do a lot of cool things. Like we'll, uh, for instance, like if I have a 12 row corn planter, we'll do a lot of split planters, and we'll we'll compare across the field, you know, which varieties are yielding better, and as you know, as unbiased of an area as possible. And what's yep. amazing is I have seen on, on six rows, um, every six other six rows, a different variety. Deer favor one specific variety of corn way more than the other six rows of corn in that planter. And it's mind-boggling how it's the same exact plant. It's just a different variety. It's got different characteristics about it. So, like, with that mindset, like, what what makes a quality variety what makes a quality seed blend and how do you end up coming up with that in your mixes yeah so we work with growers all across the country and uh, the pandemic put some stress on that where there were some seeds entering the market that had a higher weed percentage and weren't as regulated just because demand was far greater than supply mm. but we're lucky to kind of work with a bunch of growers and, and try to you know keep that in check where the percentage of weed seed is extremely low because of you know the quality of grower we're working with but to your point every plant for instance clover radish turnip rape um, different types of hybrid brassicas have different varieties and um, when i say quality or, or premium we we go through the process you do you know testing all these and having others tested along with us and the agronomist test and the growers test it to determine palatability, growth, forage, um, and how they grow in different climates and conditions to make sure that, you know, when we select a variety of hybrid brassica or a variety of turnip or radish or clover, it checks all the boxes. What do we want this seed mix to do? Mm -hmm. we, want to, we want to grow in shade with minimal till, yada, yada, yada. So we select this variety of blanche clover and this variety of chicory so that they've got the palatability of the growth, the germination, they, they work in the environment and they feed the deer. And so we, you know, we try to, to check all those boxes way before the product even becomes a product. 
and then uh, work on you know percentages so they grow well together and don't fight and don't suffocate each other out and and then we we don't use um cheap per se seed like a rye grass you'll never see that in any of our products mm. it's it's a filler seed that will grow anywhere great but that's about all it does so um we stay away from the fescues the rye some of those cheap um filler seeds just because they don't they don't represent our brand and they don't provide the quality of product that we want so um there's a lot that goes into that that's kind of the fun part um that's where my brain just spins because i and really enjoy that part of it and finding these different types of um brassicas or an ethiopian cabbage which is a, a unique species that checks all the boxes for us um handles drought handles heat i mean it grows two to three feet tall in good conditions can regrow i mean it's a great grazer all these things um that come into it and and there you have it all of a sudden we've got a, a product called bombshell or big sexy or what have you um yeah, that's definitely a fun thing. And you know, I've, I've done my own tinkering in a couple senses um, over the years. And uh, unfortunately for me, I don't get the best um, comparison results because the, the places that I'm typically doing this on, even though I'm fortunate that I get to tinker on pretty good amount of acreage, I just have such a high deer density that, yeah. um, you know, it's so hard to really give good comparison. It seems like I can I can throw just about anything out and they're going to eat it off, which makes it, makes it really, really tough when you're, when you're trying to really compare and stuff and what's the, what's the best. And I think there's a, there's another conversation for another day when you're talking about um, what's available in the surrounding habitat to support. Cause let's face it, food plots are a supplement. To, well, okay. Okay. But let me, uh, that segues into my next question. So in my opinion, and a lot of the goals that I have, I'm using food plots as a, as a supplementation and a, a, a use to steer deer movement in my property now are you using food plots for anything else besides that or is your main goal something similar to what i just said i mean every property is different um the properties i hunt are one farm i mean we have a very high deer density um we took it out of eggs so we manage all of the the food on it mm. so i mean in addition to the browse we've created through hinge cutting and things of that nature um we do feed a lot of deer but most of the properties I haunt, most of the properties I help um, set up, if you will, it's more transition, deer movement, manipulation, things of that nature. They're working egg farms or um, the person has 100 acres and they plant an acre of it. Um, so let's be honest. I mean, you can't feed an entire herd of deer on an acre. Um, and it's less, it's 1% of the property. I like to mm -hmm. have 10% of it in food if you're actually going to feed. Um, so it's a lot of like that, the lease I've got is a working, it's a, it's an egg farm. It's, it's running, it's operational. So I'm, I'm all transitions, manipulating deer. How do I get deer in daylight um, without, how do you hunt a hundred acre bean field? You can't, mm. um, unless you direct traffic for, I mean, encourage them to enter or access it in certain areas and hunt that based on the wind and bedding and the type of food you're planting. And um, so I would say a majority of them are to your point. Um, directing traffic, um, you know, manipulating movement and others um, that have the ability to plant a, a, a lot of acreage um, become more of a true destination food style of setup. Yeah. 
And, and I, I want to dive into this a little bit more, but I want to backtrack a little bit. So, you know, you, you said earlier, um, and if you look at your your list of blends, there's a there's a diverse section of, of different blends. I mean, I don't know how many different blends you have. It's quite a number. I, I looked at a lot of them. And one thing that I find very interesting, and I think some of this stems from um, agriculture, uh, because in agriculture, you know, we pretty much are growing monocultures of crops for maximum yield potential. And, yep. you know, there's a, there's a, a common, um, I'm going to call it a misconception that we can't mix certain, uh, certain varieties of plants with others. And when I say certain varieties, certain types of plants, you know, you're going to have yeah. grasses as, as, you know, in cereals versus brassicas, which are versus a legume. And, uh, there, there's a lot of information out there that certain blends are bad because you're mixing one type of plant with another type of plant. And, uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, uh, negativity in, in our world and in our industry and people don't recommend that. And, uh, that's not been my experience, but I, but I would like you to dive in a little bit more. How do you go about, uh, or, or what does it take to, as far as tinkering to determine appropriate percentages and seeding rates to allow some of these blends to be molded together and maximize mm-hmm. each of those plants in those mixes? Yeah. And you to your point, we have, three mixes where we've mixed grains and brassicas and we've gone even further in a couple of them mixed legumes with some clovers in there too. Um, and again, I, like I said, through testing, but also through the agronomists I work with, uh, we've tried to hit ratios where all the plants can be successful, how we want them to be. Um, for instance, in green machine, the way it starts and the way it finishes are two different plots. Um, that winter rye, the winter oats germinate really, really fast. It looks like it's all grains. And as that plot matures through its full maturity and as the deer feed through it, it ends up being almost all brassicas. Um, so it's just a really neat mix and how it kind of morphs over time. Um, Hall Pass has a lot more um, grains in it than that. And it's it's more of a grain base, but it has a similar feel in that um, truly believe that those varieties working together allow for different plant maturity, for deer to feed through it, and for all plants in it to thrive and to get you into that next year uh, by protecting and nursing some of those clovers along. Um, so, you know, some of it's trial and error, some of it's quote unquote science, mm-hmm. um, but it's a, like I said, I'm lucky to have some guys working alongside me that um, are a lot smarter than I am that kind of help us refine the mixes so that Every plant gets its its space and its fair share to grow. And then we manipulate plant maturity levels. Mm. And um, prior, I mean, and I, I read a lot about food plots and what works and what doesn't. And it's so black and white when you read about it. Absolutely. Uh, I think there's a lot more gray area that unfortunately doesn't get talked about very often um, in the food plot category. I don't think anything in black and white. Um I don't think there's an absolute best way or an absolute worst way, or you have to do it this way or have to do it that way. And I think you see that in our blends. Um, I'm very, I'm very much a gray thinker just in how, how things work and react together. And, um, and the success of the products in the field, I think kind of support that. Um, but there's a, a lot of ways to do it. And um, just cause one person's way might be different than another's. They can both work and be successful. And we've had, some of our best mixes without question um, go against some of that um, some of the information you read out there as far as mixing different plants so um, 
we, we've always kind of done things our own way and um and I think that's okay sometimes. It's absolutely okay. And you you, meant, you mentioned one thing. We were talking about this earlier before we started uh, far, uh, before we started this episode. Uh, but you you'd mentioned it here. You talked about the maturities, and uh, the ratios and maturities are a big thing. And I think that's that's a big reason why there's so much gray area in food plots because let, let's let's take every general area and deer population is going to have a different habitat type a quality of habitat a density mm-hmm. of deer it's going to have a different level of hunting pressure which hunting yep. pressure is 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 an anomaly as far to me hunting pressure affects so much about how yeah. deer move through property i mean you take hunting pressure out of out of it and you just made like to me, like setting properties up and managing them for quality whitetails and habitat and all this stuff, it's easy. It's when you throw hunting pressure into the mix, it becomes it. But but sticking with uh, with the food plots, you know, um, be- because of all those various factors, you're going to see things work really, really well in some areas of the country and some areas of a county ver- versus another. So I think it's really, really hard to to make a blanket recommendation on a food plot that is absolutely perfect i'm not saying you can't make a blanket statement as far as you know understanding the maturity of some plants and setting them up at a food plant plot plan that's going to be good for most of the season but there's so many other variables in in order to make that work and i I think that was just one thing i wanted to make sure in the ratio part um you know give you a good example let's now for for I'm going back to my ag brain, uh, when you're planting a cereal grain, like let's say you're making cereal grain for for combining wheat or you're 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 chopping it for a dairy forage something, we're planting that really really thick, trying mm-hmm. to add in a clover, trying to add in a brassica, it's a waste of a waste of energy and waste of money. But adjusting okay. those ratios that you're getting some of it. It, it can be done. There's enough plant, uh, there's enough soil space laterally if you have those ratios of those seed blends adjusted. And that's one thing I don't think people quite understand. I think they just hear this species doesn't belong with this species and boom, that that's it. That's a bad seed blend. And that's not the case. That's human nature, right? Just oh, immediately, <laughs> immediately assume like you mix grain, uh, rye with brassica. No, it doesn't work. The rye suffocates it. Well, it does if you plant it at 200 pounds per acre. Exactly. But it doesn't if you have the right ratio. So, but that's human nature. I mean, that's just how how people read things and operate. And then it becomes black and white when it's really not. Mm. Um, and I think something we touched base on earlier too that we have a lot of fun with and and really helps um, some of our products live in that gray area is how we play and mix plant maturity levels. And we do it with every mix we have, um, varying plant maturity levels to encourage, you know, earlier attraction or later attraction. I think when I started doing this 15 years ago, when you talked about a radish, a turnip or a brassica, the first thing, oh, it's got to freeze. It's got to be cold. Otherwise it don't work. Yeah. The first, I mean, that's the first thing you heard. And, and that could be more false exactly. uh, in my opinion. And from what I've seen, and I think it's fun to open people's eyes when they plant a product like our big sexy mix, which has four different types of brassicas in it, and they all vary in, in maturity levels and what they do, and how deer feed in it so early in the season. It mm. just blows people's mind that their big sexy plot is full of deer in October, when it it shouldn't be until it's cold in their head. Mm-hmm. So it's been a lot of fun to do things like that and um, mix different plants together, like brassicas and clovers. Oh, those can't work together. Why not? Um, Nebraska works as a nurse crop. You, you kind of forget you planted the clover and chicory. 
the year the brassicas in the fall the following spring your clover and chicory grows mm. so um there's so many things that you can play with that help the customer be more successful that if you just read online it's a it's a it's a major no-no yeah so um we kind of have fun swimming upstream. I think one of the things you said about brassicas and clover being a no-no, I think one of the reasons why people say that, and I tend to agree with this on some cases, is you know, let's say you've got an established clover field, but it's you know it's a couple years out. It's starting to get patches of weeds, but you've still got established clover. I haven't had very good luck in trying to terminate that clover and put it in brassicas or at the same time put brassicas into that established clover and the reason for that and a lot of people don't understand this is most of those clovers that are in there are perennial clovers they've got a deep root base and that root base is going to outcompete a young seedling whose root base is you know you're watching it grow you know it's going to outcompete for moisture and stuff i've i've seen it work but i've i've seen when we talk about seeing failures with brassicas and clovers that's generally where i saw but now when you're talking about establishing a new clover plot you know and putting a nurse crop with brassicas that's a great strategy in a lot of cases yeah. and that's why that seed blend really really works yep yeah i, I get the question a lot you know can i want to plant your clover mix in the spring can i then just broadcast you know your brassica mixes into it it's like <laughs> you know it, it doesn't quite work that way right um, you know just in the way those perennials establish themselves to your point deep roots that's last long time they don't allow that type of competition just to come in and walk all over them per se. Sure. Um, but I do like the rotation over time of clovers to brassicas because what one takes, the other one gives. Um, just as long as you, you know, fully work that in and and um, we pulverize it with like a, um, a tiller, if you will. And I like that rotation mm-hmm. because of the rotation from the clovers fixating nitrogen and then the brassicas coming in. <laughs> you know, soaking it all up. So, yeah. So do it. that's the fun part about this. Um, there are just so many different ways to, to plant food plots. And it's so much fun talking to people because you learn something every time and come up with new strategies and ideas. And that's where all the blends come from solving problems. Yeah, that's for sure. And uh, I think let's, I'd really like to dive into that. So uh, I think the best way to kind of narrow uh, narrow this or, or navigate this conversation, I should say. Um, if if you don't mind doing this, you know, you'd said that you've you've got a couple different properties that you're able to hunt. You, you either your own or part of in, in management. And you know, without going into too much detail, that's going to be you know incriminating on yourself. I'd really like if you would explain uh, the best of your ability how you would describe these properties, and then let let's cater your seed blends and your food plot mixes, your recommendations based on the goals of those properties because you and I both know that each property size shape or form is probably going to have different uh, potentials different goals um, serve different purposes throughout that hunting season so you know let's take your scenarios and let's just navigate through that starting from one property to the next yeah so I've got three different properties that I hunt one's my four acre house one is a family property that's 140 acres and one's a lease that's a couple hundred acres and they all, they couldn't be more different, which is kind of fun when it comes to doing what I do. So at my house, it's tiny property, tons of deer. So I have to approach it a little differently in that um, I, I, do, I, I plant earlier than one might think of planting brassicas because I'm trying to get these plants almost over mature in that they almost get, you know, 
too big, too woody, too mature for that early season attraction in with the idea that my best hunting opportunity is later in the year. And I'm trying to get as much food as long into the process as possible. Mm. Small plots, um, which is a huge challenge. So I'm going for huge tubers, um, huge, huge, you know, forage plants, the hybrid brassicas, the radishes, the turnips, and my seed rates are, are the opposite of what you'd think. Um, I don't put down too much. I put down less to get bigger plants from each seed. And I plant them early, uh, you know, in June in Wisconsin is when I, I typically plant at my house, which is a lot earlier than I recommend most people plant because of my goal mm-hmm. of pushing that food way late into the year. Um, so that's what I do in my plot behind my house. And then down below, it's super shaded. So I really only have the opportunity to plant it in early spring. And that's in our, our hot chicken comeback kid mix, a perennial mix because of its shade tolerance. So those are the two plots at my house. And they are strictly designed to try to last as long into the fall and winter as possible. And, and because, before, before you get into the next one, I, I want to bring up a good point that you said. So you you set that plot up because you you said you believe that later in the season is going to be a place or a time where you're able to capitalize on that. And I think yep. that, that's one thing I've talked about on a lot of episodes. We've had other people talk about, you know, when those, you get into those small properties, micro tracks, it's really, really hard to have a, mic, a, a track of that size you know, those two, five, 10 acre tracks that it's good the entire length of the season. I think it's a really good idea to figure out where is your best time to to capitalize on that property. And then with that knowledge of knowing how deer handle, you know, move through that property, cater your food plots to just be the ice cream to that situation. So that, that's a really good point that you brought there. Yeah. I mean, while I'd love to hunt that early season, I don't see any mature deer till October 31st. Mm-hmm. And this is my seventh year hunting it. And my best chance of killing a deer, if I don't do it the weekend, November 10th to the 15th, is December and January. Um, it's just how it works. I can't hold deer on my property. I have four acres. Right. So, I mean, I have doe groups that live there. So, obviously, they go into estrus the 10th to the 15th, clearly. And then I've got too many does. So, I've got them cycling again in December and January. And that's when those bucks are in there. So I've got to try to manipulate, you know, the forage I have available to try to cater to those times of the year on that specific property. Um, I, I love that. I love hunting those small tracks because they're, they're so fun to try to figure out. And when it's your own place that you live at, that just makes you, know, I, yeah. I had a great experience the other year. I, I did that on a, on a really cool buck in my back. I have two acres here and, and did that. And it was such a cool experience watching, you know, catering exactly what we're talking about it's it's a it's an experience that if you've never done it um y- you don't you don't understand the feeling of gratitude i i've killed one of my biggest deer on it um january 7th um, wow so i mean it it was a deer that i hunted very hard he was on the property from the 31st all the way to the 7th so three months of cat and mouse um i'm convinced he watched me get out of my house and walk down to the stand every day but uh I had a, a young doe going to heat late and he followed her right into the plot January 7th. And, um, 
I got lucky. So I want to dive a little bit more into the making this this property is a little bit better, you know, in that sweet spot of the rut, and then later, um, not just from the standpoint of just your observation does, but um, what's the surrounding area like? Is it heavily ag? Is it mixed ag? You know, what's the cover ratio like? Like, what's uh, what other factors influence you? Um, you know, as far as food availability, cover availability, that make you say that these times are are, are better. Um, so there's a, there's a, I mean, I'm the first house before we kind of start to enter the, the town, if you will. Um, and we're butted up to a large tract of land that you can't hunt, um, where all these deer are living. And, um, it's getting to be more of an older, old, older growth, less stem count forest, but there are areas where the state has come in and done some logging not far from me that are, have started to increase stem count and all those things behind us in between us and the city, big ag field that, um, about a hundred acres cornfield every year, but now it's getting transitioned into warehouses and things of that nature. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes the dynamic. Um, not much ag at all. Um, I mean, backyard bird feeders yeah. and, you know, just this large tract of unhuntable ground are kind of the, um, the, what I'm up against, if you will. And my best guess is that deer frequent my property and I shouldn't say deer bucks frequent my property based on when my does goes go into estrus. Mm. Um, that's just my, my guess over the last seven years of kind of hunting it and, and understanding how deer react to it. And it's the same every year. So, it, I mean, it's telling me that, all right, my first doe goes in the estrus, you know, that probably that first week in November, but then more of them do that the 10th to the 17th, because that's when my property's on fire. Um, I'll have all my mature deer there then. So that tells me that um, things are going on. And then as they recycle in January, December and January, those bucks will come back through again. Um, and I know from neighbors and whatnot that the, the bucks in my area seem to have a large um, area that they'll travel and kind of miles, if you will. I hunted a really big deer a few years ago and thought I was him. And it turns out he had about a five mile radius that everybody knew about him. Wow. So it kind of adds, uh, it makes things very interesting. You never really know what you're going to see. Um, and, but you always have that one or two deer that you see every year, like that, that one deer that your, your property is his core and the others are just coming for um, when the time is right. Yeah. One thing I noticed with the deer that I killed two years ago, and I'm, I'm trying to see if there's a deer that I, I had pictures of this year, that's still alive. Um, you know, you talked about those, those doe groups coming in the heat at a certain time. I I've noticed with, with that, those specific individual bucks that you can identify doing that exact same thing. That's how mm -hmm. I was able to connect in 2020. And that's how I'm hoping to connect, um, you know, in the future with a couple other deer I watched. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge, you know, Pennsylvania, is very similar to your your state in that you know high hunting pressure it's hard to get a deer um, to the age class that, that, that you want to see but they do exist yeah. and that's that's all part of the fun game so um i really like the way you describe that i mean let's let's keep continue let's continue going down the the food plot prescriptions uh based on some of these properties yeah so the, my lease um is unique in itself as well i, I got it late last year um I, I said it has no food on it. That's kind of a lie. It has an egg on it, but once that gets pulled, then there's, there's no food. Mm. Uh, so it's a 200 acre piece. And I bet it's got a, at least a hundred acres of egg and the rest is 
um, rolling hills and timber. They just cut a bunch of it. Cut, they cut 40 acres of it, which is going to be awesome in a few years when there's a lot more, um, you know, stem count from that. But it's a really neat property. Hunt's way bigger than it is. Uh, the, 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 the fun part for me is that uh, I've got free reign to plant wherever I'd like, um, given what's already there. I just need to I'm, be aware of that. But it allows me to strategize what, what you and I talk about is transition food plots, which I have found to be probably the most successful type. Mm. Um, I think I beat my head against the wall as a young kid. I hunted egg property. I grew up around it. And boy, I see a lot of deer. I mean, I see hundreds of deer a night and I never killed any of them um, because you're hunting this big egg field and all the deer pouring into it. But I didn't do anything to help predict where they were going to enter the field or exit the field or what have you. And these little transition plots that I'll be able to plant um, are strategically located based on access. How can I get in and out knowing that I'm sitting over a food source? Um, prevailing winds in the, in the early fall and then late fall. Um, and then, you know, what plot product I'm going to plant based on when I'm going to hunt it. So there's a corner that connects the logging road to bedding um, and this kind of protected corner of what's going to be a bean field this year. And I've probably got an eighth of an acre kind of chiseled out between the woods and the um, bean field that I'll be able to plant. And it's perfect for me to access on a south wind, which the first two weeks of our hunting season in September, I mean, we're 80% south winds. Yeah. So um, it sets up perfectly for um, hopefully uh, an opportunity this fall. And I'll plant, I'll plant that in late August because I want those plants to attract deer in September and October using plant maturity levels. So it's completely opposite from my house. Instead of planting really early, I'm going to plant really late. So that those plants are fresh and growing early September, early October when the beans are green and I've got, you know, my, my brassicas, my, my kales, my radishes, varieties of rape and hybrid that are still in their growing phase, not the maturity phase. So you're going to be in there feeding on them as they enter this big giant hundred acre bean field. So completely different setup, um, completely different strategy for me. Um, and we'll, we'll see how it goes this year. Uh, and then we've, we've also kind of gone in and we'll plant the logging road um, in a mix really early in the spring before canopy just as a, um, not to necessarily feed the whole herd, mm -hmm. uh, but to give them a reason to continue to kind of use that path to enter and access the field, just kind of build into that plan. Um, yeah, absolutely. I like that. And a couple things you said that I'd, I'd like to bring into conversation, bring to light. So you talked about ag, not that there's not food, you know, there's ag, but ag is one of those things to, to me, I, I think the, you know, the Midwest is an exception if you're letting standing grain and stuff. Um, for the overwhelming majority of the whitetails range, and this is very true in my area, I don't know if it is for you, but um, agriculture is feast and then famine for wildlife. Um, agriculture is bad for wildlife. I will, I, I, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking my neck out here because I am an agronomist. I am very, very pro-farming. But when you're talking about managing for wildlife, managing for deer, let, let's face it, you know, the air, my personal area, we've reduced the amount of tree lines. We've reduced the amount of cover, the amount of edge. We use pesticides. We try to kill, every, we, we try to eliminate all other species of 
of plants except the monoculture crop we have. And we are making equipment as efficient as we possibly can to maximize the amount of grain intake. So, yeah, we might cut a cornfield, and you'll see some deer coming out and eating that corn uh, immediately. I mean, I see it every year, but it's quickly consumed and the same thing is true with, with beans and stuff so it's it's very feast and famine and i think relying on that is is just not it's it's just not consistent it's it's not the consistency that i want when i'm coming up with a food plot program yeah and that's why that lease is so unique um compared to the other two properties and that it's i mean there there isn't a lick of food on it right now just none to your point i mean the the equipment they use now is so efficient that, um, I mean, we'll have five different micro plots there that hopefully hold deer until, until winter sets in and then they'll move to bigger feedlots. Um, Wisconsin is getting to the point now where more and more hunters are leaving things standing along with just planting more and more, depending on who you are, what you have and what you can afford to do. Uh, right. every, every different, you know? So, yeah, I mean, that, every property I have sets up a little differently just in what I have. And I think that lease that I have is very similar to a lot of other people where it's in ag, they have no regulation or control over, you know, when it gets cut or how it, how it gets cut, what it's planted in. So they've, I've kind of got to be strategic about how I use it and plant it and um, hunt it to maximize my opportunities in that first half of the fall. And once we get winter, um, my plots will last, they're so small through, through December and probably run out of food at some point, just because I mean, an eighth an acre times four is still a half an acre, you know, that's just, mm -hmm. can't feed a lot of deer. Um, and that's why I set it up the way I set it up just to really try to maximize those first couple months of fall. So you said you have small, small plots. They're set up strategic locations for wind advantage access and things like that, which I really love and can echo that as far as how the importance of, of plot placement. But talk a little bit more with this property. How are you catering this? You mentioned kales and clovers and stuff, but how are you using the specific food plot varieties and one one thing i'd be curious to pick your brain on if, if you're talking about different locations in the farm that you're planting are you planting different varieties of food plot seeds or are you planting the same food plot program or the same food plot blend and everything um based on on what you feel this property needs like can you talk a little bit about that are, are you are you seeing transition in you know clover one here brassicas here or do you like to see the same thing in every location Super interesting question. I think if you ask a bunch of different people, they have different thoughts on it. I know some people that will plant everything in the same thing because then when it's on, it's on everywhere. And when it's not, it's not. Um, I, I tend to provide a little bit more variety just based on um, I'm, I'm a variety guy. All of our mixes have a ton of stuff in it. Um, and I just hate for, for things to be either on or off. Mm -hmm. I like the plants to dictate when deer want them. And hopefully that increases the length of time that I've got deer on the property. Um, so a lot of times it's the environment that will dictate what I'm planting. Um, for instance, one of the plots is kind of tucked back in the woods, limited light. We'll plant it early in the year and some, um, some clover, some chicories, the logging road again in our hot mix, which is clover chicory early in the season. Um, field edges, then I'll have three different plots and, It'll probably be three different things um, to make sure that 
Uh, I've got all my bases covered. This is still a new farm for me. And deer are weird. Um, my deer love radishes. My neighbor's deer won't eat radishes, they say. Um, I'm not smart enough to know why that all works. I mean, sometimes it's soil. Sometimes it's um, what else is available on your property, et cetera. And in year two, but technically really year one of a food plot program, I'm going to plant three different mixes with a ton of variety and just collect data. When did they eat it? When did they, what did they eat first? How did they go through it? Um, and continue to kind of build off of that plan for next next year. I might come in here and say, you know what, Mitch, I'm planting all three of those plots in the same damn thing. Um, you know, just based on what the deer told me. So um, I'm going to plant three different mixes and have probably 14 to 15 different plant varieties. Um, all are going to get planted in August uh, just because it kind of fits with my goal to try to attract September, October. And then I'm going to collect the data and learn from it. Um, did they like the radishes? Did they like the winter rye? Did they prefer the winter peas? Uh, did they like the clover and chicory more than anything? Um, and just kind of collect that data. I, I really like that. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, it's one thing when you've worked with a property long enough to know what's going to be the best prescription. But in this new case, you are, you're, you're tinkering, you're collecting observations and you're fine tuning it. And, uh, as you fine-tune your food plot program, you're probably going to fine-tune your hunting strategy on that property too, right? Because, you know, what, what, the, the food plot plants that you plant are going to affect your, your, your hunting strategy because of timing, yeah. because of location, and everything else. And the more you fine-tune that, the, the, the more sound you'll make your hunting strategy if you're doing it in an effective way. Another question I had for you, you were talking about transition plots versus sitting on open ag fields. Um are you so transition plot? And I think I'm understand. You know, my definition would be the same as you. It, it's a plot that you're you're kind of staging deer. You're feeding them. It's giving you a shot opportunity, but it's not that it's not the spot they're going to stop and feed uh, all night long. That, uh, that you know they're going to be moving through for you know a, a couple minutes of the evening. Um, so are are you? Is that your preferred food plot way to hunt, or are there other types of food plots you like to hunt, or do you change your strategy? I guess what my what I'm getting at is, do you ever run into situations where you do find success in creating those quote unquote, I guess you call it like a destination plot or a, a holding plot? You know, some people say to not hunt those. I like to. What, what's your take on that? Yeah. So on this particular property. Um, yeah, I use the staging plot, like you said, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, typically they're going to stage in it and feed in it before dark. They won't be there that long, but they're going to be there long enough to hopefully, if it's, the time is right and everything works out, to get a shot. Um, but then they move on to their destination food, the beans, the corn, whatever it is, it's going to feed the whole herd, which allows me to get out easier too. So there's, there's more to the staging plot than just killing. Um, it's access and getting in and out without blowing things up. Um, and to your point earlier, manipulating those deer, trying to have a better guess as to how they're gonna enter the food plot um, by creating a reason for them to be there. And that's how I hunt that property. Um, now our other property that might, it's not mine, it's my in-laws and my, my brother-in-law kind of, they kind of manage it. and I just help plant and hunt a little bit the things. Then the, the strategy changes a little bit because we've, We've turned what was 30 acres of ag into um, our own playground, if you will. Wow. So we, we've socked in um, trees and some cedars and some switchgrass and some, um, you know, some windbreaks and some of that natural fun cover. But we've also created some destination food that 
we we hunt. Um, and in those scenarios, typically what we'll do is um, hunt them from blinds, um, elevated blinds to kind of help help with wind. Mm. Um, we'll use um, our incognito mix, which is a tall growing Egyptian wheat sorghums to access in and out things of that nature. Because when you're hunting food, deer are probably going to be in it in the morning and then in the evening, and that's when you come come and go. So those are things that we definitely take into consideration. But then we we hunt destination food, so I'm completely going against my strategy for the last farm based on how this one's set up. So that's why I said um, I'm a gray thinker, not a black and white. I've, I'm never the type of guy that says, you can't do this, you have to do that. Um, more of a every property lends itself to different strategies. And um, over time, like you said earlier, like Grant Woods, it can change. Um, and what we found is when this farm was in working ag, we had all these stands and they were great. And now that we've changed it, our old stands aren't as good as they once were and new stands are better. Yep. So um, it's been a lot of fun and we've learned a heck of a lot. Um, and I mean, our first two years that we did this, my father-in-law killed a deer the first night. Um, it was just like clockwork. We had deer and then this last year was different. We never had that early season deer. And then later in the year, we had more shooter bucks than we've had in our lifetime. So it's been fun to see how it's changed in three years just by kind of manipulating the way we're doing things with a lot more food. Um, I mean, a lot of that is food, a lot of it's cover too, but um, every, I think the, the key takeaway is every property is different. Every property is unique. Um, there's different ways to set up every property. There's no right or wrong way. And you better, better be willing to learn from, you know, the past years to continue to improve because yes. you're going to, something new every year it's kind of like a win in rome do as romans kind of thing so you talked about the hunting the destination plots on on your your other farm here uh, one thing that i think is really important regardless of of food plots and you already mentioned it it was access and not blowing deer and i, I think um you know people talk about deer being nocturnal or bucks being nocturnal on a property um i i truly believe that properties are nocturnal properties deer are not nocturnal um, deer are doing what they do during the daylight just where they feel secure and I think yeah. if you want to turn a property into a nocturnal property chase deer and set your food plot program up in a way that you chase deer that they see you hear you or smell you because if a deer yeah. doesn't feel comfortable to go to a food source where it's in an opening and, and feel secure it's going to use it at nighttime so yeah. if by any means in that hunting strategy you can't access your plot without deer seeing you hearing you or smelling you and the same thing with exiting and that's gonna that that's a flaw in how you're getting in and out it's good it's that's going to be detrimental to the whole entire system that you, you've developed you talked about hunting on box blinds so one of the things that's just opened my eyes so much over the years is you, you know we, we hunt hill country here in pennsylvania you're familiar with that in wisconsin oh, yeah. um there's no such thing as up oh, the winds out of the west it's perfectly out of the west today we get swirling <laughs> winds constantly yeah. and uh you know, let's take a food plot in a block of timber, for instance. You know, if you've got, you know, trees, leaves, stuff like that, you've, you've got a barrier. Then all of a sudden you create this opening. It's just going to allow wind to swirl and tunnel in there and, and do crazy things. So sitting on those food plots, even if it is a transition plot or if it's a, a, a destination plot, whatever, um, those swirling winds kill you if you're sitting there and the deer stand there long enough to smell you. And, you know, 
if I guess if the first deer in the field is is the buck you want to shoot, it's all well and good if you do it before he smells <laughs> you. But what's well, not yeah. usually the case? It's usually does no. and fawns and and everything else. So that that's that's big for me. So I, I really like that you mentioned that uh, setting up foolproof access on that property and uh, stand location was key and maintaining and t- containing your scent things like that. Like that that all plays big when you're coming into a food plot. Um, hunting strategy. So I, I guess, uh, the, you know, one of the things uh, like you to do a little bit more before I let you go here is, I mean, I, go ahead, I go ahead. I didn't invent that strategy. I did it wrong for so many years and finally realized <laughs> maybe I should take that into consideration. Um, when I grew up hunting, you didn't think about wind or access or anything. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I mean, you set the same stand every day, every week, all the time. That's just what you did. So, um, I learned that from failing many, many times and finally, you know, figuring out what, what one of the reasons I'm, you know, for lack of success was. So you and um, me both, it's amazing when you have that aha moment, when you do the change and you see it work, it's like, oh my word, this has been years. <laughs> and I, I, I find, I see it, I get it. It's amazing. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. And then you wonder, wow, what took you so long, Mike? What took you so long? Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, I before before we get letting you go, you know, we're we're closing in on time, and I want to be mindful of your time. I really would like, you know, you went through those first two properties and what food plots you really work, and now you're talking about this third property that is it's a hunting property. You've pulled ag from this property, and now it's it's solely for wildlife and deer. So, talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how the food plot strategy, the plants, the timing, all that. Go into a little bit more detail. What does that look like on a property of 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 this uh, this caliber? Yeah, I mean, we do we do a lot of testing on it too. Honestly, um, it's a kind of our test grounds, one of our initial test grounds. So we we run a lot of different things, and we do we do plant corn and beans. Um, and leave it standing in areas as well to just add more food and forage um, to the property. But we've we've got I want to say probably 20 acres that we're planting, um, and we plant more and more. I feel like every year into perennials, some of those you know high protein, cold tolerant perennials, clovers and chicories. That honestly, Mitch, we're getting they're, they're the first thing to green up in March. They stay green and feed deer and turkeys and grouse and the pheasants are in there. April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, they're digging for it in the winter. And so, I mean, so often guys are like, what, what do you have for hunt plots? Well, they overlook some of the, the, the simplest of things. So we've integrated more and more perennials in there um, and just to help kind of build what I call the foundation of, of our program is just having food sustainably for as long as possible. Now that we have more deer that are attracted to the property because some of the changes we've made, we got to make sure we've got the food for them. So we do have some standing corn, we do have some standing beans um, and a bunch of perennials kind of positioned throughout the property. A lot of times our perennial plots are more bigger open areas um, that deer are comfortable feeding in spring, summer, when the, the testosterone levels are lower and they just seem to be more readily uh, or willing to be out in, in the wide open. Mm. Um, and then, for us on this farm, radishes are the golden ticket. So like our big sexy mix, our green machine, our illicit, which is a variety of radish, are kind of the core of our program. And we will manipulate when we plant. So we'll plant some early and some late um, just to make sure we don't have 10 acres of radishes at the same exact time. I like to manipulate things to make sure that um, we encourage 
you know, feeding throughout the fall and winter. But the radishes, I, I think it's the sandy loam nutrient poor soil that we have. Um, we get the pH where we want it, but still the 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 natural, it's just a nutrient less soil and those right, radishes right. can thrive in it um, and still provide high levels of forage. And um, so that's, that's kind of how we built that program. And um, last year we had a, a super hard summer to plant in. Um, our, our plots were probably the worst they've ever been just based on seven straight weeks of no rain. Mm-hmm. And um, it kind of changed how the deer behaved on our property just because of the, we had to come back super late and plant. So we didn't get um, that really good late season forage because we just didn't have maturity levels that, that got them there. So we relied on our clovers and um, kind of the early season hunting. Uh, I say that like through November um, kind of as our, as our focus, but then we also get to test stuff. So um, like we're working on a, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to an upland blend that I've been working on for years mm. that is super fun to play with because of the, the diversity in that. Um, and our new mother load product that we've tested for years on it, that super high forage lab lab and soybeans and iron clay peas and just these really high protein mixes that we've kind of, they've helped change our property just in how it became more of an early season food, which you've never had. Mm. So um, it's been a lot of fun and I'm going in circles, but um, it's a, it's kind of a, all three properties we work differently, good, bad, or otherwise, um, just based off what we've learned and what we know. And uh, next year, when we sit down and chat, I, I probably will change my mind a couple of times again, but that's just in this food plotting is an obsession. Um, it's one of those things that you keep chasing perfection, even though it doesn't exist. Right. And that's what we do. Right. I mean, we, we, uh, we make a plan, we sit down at the end of the year and go, this worked, this didn't work, that worked, that worked. And then we blow it up and do another plan. And that's just, the fun of it. It is. I mean, I, I relate a lot of it to ag. I mean, every year when I when I go through a growing season with growers, we talk about what worked, what didn't, and uh, we do a winter planning. We we I pull soil tests. We go through the soil tests. We come up with uh, strategies for the upcoming growing season. And every year you stem from the last, but everything's a little bit different. That following growing is not exactly the same, so you have to fine tune. And I I think food plots and you know for for one thing, you're talking about farming for wildlife. So in a sense, you're farming. Farming is very variable. Um, but, you know, I think those factors just it, – it's just part of making it fun. But fine-tuning it is, is just – I just love it. I mean, I'm, I'm rambling too, but it is just fun. Agreed. And I – people laugh at me when I say this, and I probably don't even mean it, but I might. Um, the planting and the buildup for me is almost getting to be just as much fun as when I release the, um, the arrow. I mean, it – I just love it so much. Um, it's like a chess match with the property and the deer and myself and the mother nature and all the things. And um, my wife hates it because it, it consumes me. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it, yeah, it's, it's so much fun. Um, and watching the ability to work with people who have never done it before and watching the progression of their property. Um, that makes it all worthwhile. It's a, it's a, a lot of aha moments, a lot of fun to watch somebody's hard work um, and trust in us, you know, come to fruition and they kill a deer or they have more deer feeding on their property or whatever it is. That is that is so gratifying um, to kind of help people 
improve their property and enjoy hunting more. All the, all the reasons we do it, um, you're getting to share it with other people. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of gratification in helping other people with that. And that's a fun part. That's why I want to have this podcast to, sh- to share the wealth of knowledge of people like yourself. And, you know, app, Absolutely. That's a, that's a huge part of it. But, you know, for, for me, I mean, there's a lot of parts when you talk about private land manipulation, habitat, and such, there's, there's a lot of important things, um, when it comes to private land. And like I said, this isn't the land management podcast. It's the Pennsylvania woodsman. But like I said, of, of all the things on private land and, and habitat manipulation, hunting strategy, I would say for me personally, food plots have probably had the greatest impact on my hunting uh, learning curve, knowledge, uh, you know, learning about deer, hunting strategy, hunting successes. Like they're just, that's how important they are to me. Um, And, and um, I'm to the point now where with private land, where, you know, for, for me to want to consistently hunt it, I got to have some kind of food plot, not necessarily that I always want to have a a food plot to sit on. That's not what I'm getting at, but it's just the, the, what they do for your hunting strategy and how you can create it around that property. It it just, it, to me, it's so vital and it's so like, you don't know any better until you experience that. I, I couldn't agree more, honestly. Um, it's, uh, like I said, it's watching somebody purchase a property that has no food on it, hunt it that first year, call us in November and say, I need some help. And then just watching the, the transformation of that property. Um, it's incredible. It, it, it's a, the single most important factor. Um, and then every year, obviously, you learn more about accessing it. And, um, how deer are, are using it to, you know, set up stands better and all that. But um, I tell you what, it's a, it's a, it's a game changer. Um, and for me, I can personally say without question, it's the reason I've had success the last 10 years hunting. Um, it's why I have um, a taxidermy bill every year, honestly, um, without that, um, I wouldn't be nearly as proficient as I have been um, just, you know, ha- having, having the ability to kind of build a plan and every once in a while getting lucky enough to follow through on it. Um, I owe that to, you know, how the, the, the food plots on the property to, to make a reason for deer to want to be there. Yeah, I definitely think it's, it's important. You know, there's, uh, there's nothing wrong with, with, I love public land hunting too. I really do. I love going. Oh, to I do it too. I absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, I've killed some good deer on public land and it, it's every bit as gratifying. You're just talking about, um, I like I I'm so sick and tired lately of the like the division in the hunting community between private land and public land. Like it's so bad right now and I think what's going on right now with the promotion of public land hunting is good and I'm so thankful that we've had it and get promotion in the sport, but there's no reason to be divided in any sense. Uh, I don't know how I would describe it. there is differences though. Let's face it. Hunting in private land and hunting public land are two different enemies. It's the same game, but would you call it like, I don't know how to, is it a different league or just like a, like a, I don't know how you, how you compare, but it's, it's still hunting. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do most of my rifle hunting in Wisconsin on public land. Um, and I, I love every second of it. Um, you know, I've done it for 25 years that way. So I don't know. It's, I, I, I try not to get into the debate, you know, I, you hunt where you can and, um, I'm thankful for every time I can hunt and whether it's public or private and I don't like to get into the versus battle, 
Um, I, and I hope people don't look at me and think, what a, what a prick, you know, he gets to hunt private <laughs> land. Um, so, um, I mean, I'm blessed to have the opportunity, but I've also worked hard for the opportunity to hunt private land. So that, that's um, exactly right. You know, do so, do um, you? Yep. And I, every once in a while, we'll get somebody that's mad at us because we're using food plots to hunt deer and, um, and they do it the, you know, the spot and stock way, which is like, man, you know what? That's awesome. Like do it the spot and stock way. Like I, I'm happy for you. Don't be mad at me for doing it my way. So, um, you know, I, it's the world we live in. Um, the the 1% is always going to be the 1%. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I try not to judge the whole, you know, the whole bushel by one bad apple. So, yeah, you um, got it. Well, hey, we've been rolling for a while, and uh, one thing I'd like you to do, if you don't mind, you talked a little bit about specific names of food plot varieties that you have, and uh, you know some of them you described, but I, I'd I'd really like to give you the opportunity to to kind of you know talk about anything that's new or exciting you'd like to share with us, and then uh, you know you know plug plug your 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 company a little bit here and uh, tell people where they can find us before we let you go. Yeah, this is the part I'm bad at. Um, but no, I we have a, a wide variety of mixes. I, I I lost count. I think it's 19 or 20. They all solve a problem. They've got very unique names. Um, they come in transparent jugs, so you can see what you're going to buy. I was wondering um, how you came up with all those names, by the way. A lot of beer. A lot of beer. <laughs> um, no, it's a we have a fun think tank. A um, bunch of crazy, passionate guys here, and uh, it gets harder and harder every time to come up with new names. Um, we've set a pretty high precedence with big sexy and hot chick and no BS and green machine and incognito and all the crazy names we have, but I would encourage you to go online, research it, see what other people are saying about it. Um, check the reviews. Um, and you know, www.domainoutdoor.com is our website. We're in most retailers nationwide and prefer you shop your local dealer. If you have one, we've got a dealer, dealer locator on our website. Type in your zip code, it'll tell you where it's at. Um, and feel free to reach out to us on any platform via email, phone. We love answering questions is what we do. Um, our goal is for you to be successful. So we're going to help you along the way. And um, like I said, I, I appreciate you letting me on here. Um, I've learned a lot. You're, it's fun to talk to somebody as knowledgeable as you, honestly. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Like I said, I'm, I'm no expert. I just um, have drawn from a lot of experiences and, and learned from a lot of smart people and put together a program to help people be successful. And it's, it's been a ton of fun. We're super blessed to, to be domain outdoor and stand for the things we stand for and do the things we do. And we're always going to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. And um, I think people appreciate that uh, and just kind of how we do things. So one thing I'd like you to do um, when I met with you guys at ATA and was looking at some of your, your seed blends and talking with you guys, you had a a seed blend and I cannot remember the name. It might've been bombshell, but it's the seed blend that it's a, it's a brassica, but it's a no tuber brassica. It's it's all leafy brassica. I don't know if I have the name right on that. Bombshell. Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, I, I was, when I read about that, like that, was a, a seed blend of seed variety that excited me for some of the experiences I've had. And I'd really like you to talk about that before we go. Yeah. Bombshell was brand new last year. Um, and it's very unique in the space. Uh, we pulled some plant varieties that haven't been used a lot. Um, and there, there are no tubers in it. It's all above ground forage. It is a forage brassica mix that some of the plants in it mature as fast as 40 days. Um, some 60 days. So it grows extremely fast. 
heat tolerant, drought tolerant. It's great across the country. Like I said, just kind of manipulate when you plant it based on where you live. Uh, but it's got Ethiopian cabbage in it, forage collards, um, a hybrid brassica, and a hybrid turnip. So no tubers, all above ground growth, a bunch of regrowers in there. A couple of those different plants can regrow themselves up to four times in a growing season. Um, and I tell you what, it's one of those products that um, you release even though it's more expensive than some of its counterparts because of the plants that are in it. Um, so it's a more expensive brassica mix than like our big sexy mix. It's going to be way more expensive because of the varieties that are in there and the type of forage it produces. Um, but it's it's designed to feed a ton of deer um, all summer, fall, and winter. And like I said, there's no tubers in it. So um, sometimes when you get down to the southern U.S., um, Folks don't like to plant radishes and turnips because they, their deer don't typically eat the tubes because for whatever reason, they don't need, need as much energy per se. Mm -hmm. And this mix is one that, I mean, deer are going to be in it early and they're going to stay in it uh, for as long as possible, as long as that thing continues to grow. So it's been a, it was, it will be one of our top selling mixes this year after launch last year. It was a lot of buzz last fall as guys were kind of seeing it for themselves and just seeing the draw ability because of those varying maturity levels. Um, and its ability to withstand heat and drought and really feed a ton of deer. It came from the egg space, um, you know, feeding livestock. So uh, it's a, I'm glad you brought that one up. It's one of my favorites. And it's, it's like I said, extremely unique in the space. Um, but I love, I love what an Ethiopian cabbage, uh, what a hybrid forage brassica, uh, what forage collards and their cold tolerance and palatability and what they can all offer working together. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up because in my experiences in food plotting when it comes to brassicas, that was something that to me was unique and, and in my opinion is a little bit above some of the other, you know, it's really common to have, um, uh, oh my goodness, I can't even, like an eco-till radish, which is a great plant, but um, yeah. depending on your situation, you might be sit in a, a situation where certain forage brassicas might be better. And I've been in those situations. I've had seed blends on one property that work really, really well, that brassica blend, and didn't do the exact performance that I wanted on another for, for very similar reasons. So I wanted I wanted to bring that up before we, we let you go, because that was one that excited me, and I think would be something that anybody listening to this, and you know, I, I think like a lot of guys think brassicas when they think food plots is oh, that was one i wanted to wanted to mention yeah i appreciate you highlighting that one because again like i said it's a uh, it's one that i'm pretty pretty proud of just how it performs and um it really it's just such a cool mix that um that adds diversity that typically you don't have and I, what i think you'll find is that when you add that diversity um you're going to find the deer react to it very favorably so mm -hmm. um i, I think it, it it's definitely one of those products that we're going to see more and more people planting it this year and kind of getting that like oh wow this is this is pretty awesome uh, that, that feedback is going to be pretty favorable so um good deal so yeah I, like i said i i appreciate you having me on this has uh, been a heck of a lot of fun so hopefully you've gotten a little bit out of it agreed i, I did and i think uh, people listening to this did so mike thanks uh thanks for taking the time and chatting with us you bet appreciate you man